from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit NFL.com slash schedule release to learn more. Podcasts. This is a story about a spy and a murderer. I first heard about it a few years ago when I was reading a book about Mossad, the Israeli spy agency. I do a lot of that reading about espionage. I've always loved spies. At one point, I'd even wanted to be one. When I graduated from college, I thought about applying to the CIA. Some of my classmates were doing it, and I thought, why not? Maybe I could live in a foreign city, Berlin or Cairo. It would be an adventure. But then I realized I'd make a pretty terrible spy. First of all, I'm not really good at keeping secrets. I'm not especially good under pressure either. And some of the questionable things that the CIA had done around the world, yeah, that played a role too. So instead, I joined the Miami Herald newspaper and became a journalist. Years later, I ended up writing about spies, even a couple of books. I loved their world, the idea of one man or one woman playing this invisible role in history and doing it with a kind of flair. Espionage is important, but it's also just cool. So in this book I was reading about Mossad a few years ago, the author mentioned an operation I'd never heard about. It was unlike any of the missions I'd studied in a few important ways. My first thought was, this is weird. I was immediately hooked. I think it's fair to say that in the history of espionage, this case of the undercover agent and the man known as the Butcher of Latvia is unique. It still has all the things that fascinate me about spies. The tradecraft, letters in invisible ink, intrigue in places around the world. In this case, Paris, Tel Aviv, Berlin, Montevideo, Uruguay, and Rio de Janeiro. There were recon missions, disguises, fake passports, shooting contests, a kill team trained in a special martial arts called Krav Maga. It was a body in a leather trunk and a drug that one agent takes so he doesn't sweat and appear nervous. There's a psychiatrist who tries to psychoanalyze Nazis. Hitler even makes an appearance. But there are even odder things, too. What makes this story so different, first of all, is that it's about an assassination plot. 
which are usually bad things. When I think of assassinations, I think of some awful moments in history. I think about Lee Harvey Oswald and Dealey Plaza in Dallas. The President of the United States, and as he turned left, two or three shots rang out. Sirhan Sirhan and Robert Kennedy lying in a pool of blood. It is possible he had not only Senator Kennedy, oh my God. I think about James Earl Ray and Martin Luther King Jr. on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. And the start of World War I, when an assassin killed the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. But this was something different. This was the story of a spy who was going to try and kill someone for a very good reason. To prevent crimes against humanity and to close a chapter on something that happened in the spy's own life. This mission was personal, at least the agent who was the lead operative. His name was Mio. Again, this is unique. Spy missions are never personal. They're not supposed to be. They're supposed to be clinical, unemotional. This operation was like that for some of its architects, but it wasn't like that at all for Mio. It also had a target who at first read seems completely evil. His name was Herbert Zuckers, and he'd betrayed people who'd once been his friends and neighbors. He'd led them to their deaths at gunpoint and sometimes killed them point blank with a machine gun. He had on his hands the blood of literally thousands of innocent victims. These were people, some of whom had really admired Herbert Zuckers, thought of him as a hero, which, oddly enough, he'd once been. All of this is wrapped up in World War II and the Holocaust and genocide law. The effects of the mission are still with us today. It's had this secret impact on our lives that nobody really knows about. I couldn't get this story out of my head, so I wrote a book about it. It's called The Good Assassin. After the book was published in 2019, honestly, I thought I was done with the whole thing. I'd spent two years looking into the mission, traveling to Israel, interviewing Mossad agents, pouring through archives in Latvia, in Brazil, in Israel, totally immersing myself. I was done with it. What else was there to say? Apparently, something. Because I kept thinking about the main characters. I had questions about them. Puzzles I hadn't been able to solve in the book, but I just couldn't get out of my head. And my book had brought people out of the woodwork who were contacting me, giving me new information. Things I'd never heard before, but were slowly helping me to peel away the layers and get closer to the core of this story. At first I thought, forget it. No way am I going back to all that. The Nazis' crimes were so horrible, I didn't want to revisit them. I didn't want to wade through all that violence again. But after a few months, I changed my mind. Maybe I could solve those puzzles that were still bothering me. Put them to rest. I realized I had to try. So that's why I'm here doing this podcast. I'm glad, actually, because the story of the hunt for the Butcher of Latvia wasn't what I thought it was. It was even stranger than I'd first imagined. What I found surprised me. So let me tell you about the spy. His real name was Yakov Maidad, but everyone called him Mio. And there are a few things you should know about Mio right off the bat. First of all, he was Jewish. He'd grown up in Germany in the 30s as Hitler was just beginning to gain power. As a young boy, Mio saw Nazis marching in the streets. He listened as his teachers began repeating Hitler's lies. It seemed to him that violence was in the air. The mission in Brazil and later in Uruguay was so personal for Mio because of his childhood, because of his background. That's Gad Shimron. He's a former Mossad agent who knew Mio well. I met him in Tel Aviv when I went to research this story. No, I mean, he was born in Breslau, 
today it's called Wroclaw, at the time it was a German town, to a very German Jewish family. I mean, his father was a very famous doctor uh, wearing the Iron Cross of the German Imperial Army uh, for his gallant service in the First World War as a medical officer on the front lines. And uh, his parents regarded themselves as pure Germans, Jewish Germans, but Germans. And when the Nazis came to power in 33, the father said, nothing is going to happen to me because I'm what they call in German, Frontkämpfer, which means frontline soldier. And uh, he felt, you know, that it's a wave of anti-Semitism, but it will, it will die away and nothing will happen. Me, on the other hand, as a teenager, He went to school, he was exposed to the terrible uh, expressions of anti-Semitism and the persecution of Jews. And he came to his parents and said, I'm not going to stay here, I'm going away. So, Mio was worried. He didn't want to be in Germany anymore. He saw bad things coming. He asked his parents if he could leave. And finally, when he'd become a teenager, they let him go to Palestine, which would later become Israel. They, they managed to arrange for him uh, a scholarship in a very good and famous high school in Haifa. And Mio went away at the age of what? He was 14, maybe 15, he went away from his family alone to a new country with a new language, with a new uh, uh, atmosphere and friends, etc. And he grew up in this, and uh, uh, then the Second World War broke out. So Mio spent the years before World War II safe and sound. When the war came, he volunteered for the British Army and saw some action, but he never made it back to Germany. His parents sent Mio postcards, letting him know they were okay. They were still in Germany, hoping for the best. But then the postcards stopped, and Mio knew that something had gone terribly wrong. And uh, all his uh, correspondence and communication with his family was cut off, but totally cut off. And um, uh, only later, after the war, he learned that his parents were, both of them were murdered in Nazi concentration camps. And it's true that, you know, the Nazis gave his father the honor of, because he was a Iron Cross bearer and on Kemper, they gave him the, uh, the honor of being on the last transport being sent from Breslau to the concentration camps, I think in 1943. Mio always regretted not being able to help his mother and father escape. He had nightmares about them. He was a private guy, so it's not like he would tell you about it. But that feeling of not being there when his parents needed him most, it never left him. After his military career was over, Mio was recruited by Mossad, the Israeli spy agency. He was a patriot, so he agreed to join. I'm Stephen Talty, and this is Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher. So if the first part was to find a Nazi and bring him for a trial, the second part was to find a Nazi and kill him. We must thwart this shameful process. The end of a trail of blood and horror. The end of a man whose name will be written in infamy. Episode 1, The Spy and the Murderer. The second thing you should know about Mio was that he didn't look like a spy. I mean, he really didn't. At the time our story takes place, the mid-60s, he was in his 40s. He was overweight, he was balding. He looked maybe like an accountant or a vice president of a bank. And when he spoke... His voice was a little high. He was shy, and he found it hard to talk to people. If you got a look at him, you wouldn't be impressed. 
Even Mio's son told me that when I met him in Israel. He'd walk right past my father, he said, and never think twice about it. In the early 60s, Mossad was just beginning to gain a reputation around the world. Its operatives were tough, physically fit, methodical. Some of their missions were controversial, and they remain controversial today. But very few people doubted that their agents were among the best in the world, lethal when they had to be. That wasn't Mio. It just wasn't his skill set. His skill set was looking boring, anonymous. When he assumed a false identity for a mission, that became his real identity. Mio was known for diving into his cover stories with conviction that was a little scary. His son told me that when Mio left on a mission, he wasn't their father anymore. He'd become this different person. Uh, Mio was a legend in the Mossad. Here's Gad Shimron again. Gad, he looks like a spy. He's tall, lean, handsome. If he played a secret agent in a movie, you'd believe it. In our conversation, Gad stressed one thing about Mio, how he could disappear into a character. He had this special characteristic of being able to dive into the person he was supposed to be for this mission, which is not that easy. You know, people don't understand how difficult it is to really uh, immerse in yourself all the necessary characteristics for playing the new person you are using for the operation. And Mio, first of all, he was, of course, he was very intelligent. He knew how to improvise was a good actor, but also he had a very good cosmopolitan European background, which meant he spoke German fluently, of course, very well English, very well French. And um, they say that he, for many years, he held the Mossad record for uh, false, stolen, acquired identities, uh, that he uh, had more than 160 different identities during his time in the Mossad. Quite a Some agents hate going undercover. Pretending to be someone else can get stressful, especially when one slip could lead to disaster, even death. But Mio actually seemed to look forward to these kinds of missions. He liked becoming other people. This is what Mio had to say about playing a role. We've had an actor read Mio's parts, but these are direct quotes in his own words. In my daily life, I was a quiet, introverted man, not particularly pushy or demanding. The minute I undertook a mission, I would become a different person. I felt confident, even assertive, and had the capacity to strike up conversations and gain the trust of people I met. So Mio didn't look like a spy, but he was really good at the work. By the 60s, Mio had made himself into one of the best undercover agents in the world, but he still had a lot of guilt about what happened to his mother and father. He'd left them at the key moment. The pain lingered. And that's what makes the next part so hard to believe. Imagine you're Mio, and one day Mossad calls you into a meeting. You don't know what it's about, but it turns out they have a mission for you. A chance to get justice for your mother and father, and for the other six million Jews murdered during the war. The mission is simple, to arrange the death of one man, a Nazi killer named Herbert Zuckers. Zuckers had been an aviation hero before the war. People called him the Latvian Lindbergh. In his own way, he was just as unusual as Mio was. There's a catch, of course. The mission isn't going to be easy. The man you're going after is suspicious, like really suspicious. He sees assassins around every corner. It's going to be dangerous. It's possible that you might not come back. But it really is a once-in-a-lifetime chance, something that many of us perhaps dream of. Righting the wrongs of the past. A chance, in a way, at redemption. So, Mio. I was pretty confident I understood him. Who doesn't want a second chance to make things right with your loved ones? Not to mention the larger picture, getting justice for the six million. But even after spending all those months doing the research for my book, I still didn't get the other main character, Herbert Zuckers. Yes, he had colluded with the Nazis and committed horrible war crimes. But why had he changed from this respected pilot 
would travel to Palestine and even praise what he observed there to this monster? What had driven him to transform, to betray so many of his countrymen? And importantly, why did Zuckers have supporters around the world, even today? Why did some people believe he was innocent? There were certainly critics of Mossad that said they were wrong to have gone after him. Zuckers was a puzzle, a dark, twisted puzzle. And I had to figure him out. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. So let me tell you about that meeting where Mio learned about the operation, the meeting that changed Mio's life. Of course, spy missions are secret. That's kind of the point. But in looking into this operation, I found something odd. Years afterwards, Mio talked publicly about it. Mossad must have given their permission. How he convinced them to do that, I have no idea. It's very rare for any spy agency, let alone Mossad, to sign off on an agent telling their secrets. But you'll hear his words and that of the other agents, and even the target. We've gotten actors to read some of their words where recordings aren't available. For once, you'll get to hear the inside story of a spy mission from beginning to end. So, it's September 1st, 1964, Paris, where Mio lives. The meeting is set for that morning. September is a great time to be in France. It's cool, and everyone has just returned from their August holiday, so everyone has a little color. They're refreshed. Mio walked the streets on his way to the meeting. He was enjoying the day. But he was also looking for tales. During the Cold War, Paris wasn't the favorite city for spies. That was probably Berlin. The city was still populated by operatives from many different agencies. And Mio had to make sure none of them was following him. Mio stopped in front of the Radio France building, checked out the pedestrians, people lingering on the steps. When he was satisfied that he wasn't being tailed, he started walking again. He found the building he was looking for. It was on the Avenue de Versailles, a beautiful boulevard in one of the city's richest neighborhoods. He ducked into the lobby waved at the concierge, and went up to the apartment where his boss was waiting. Yosef Yariv met him at the door. Yariv was the head of Mossad's special operations unit, codenamed Caesarea. Caesarea still exists today. It's an elite, undercover unit that plants agents in foreign countries. It sends its men on sabotage missions, and it plans and carries out targeted killings of those that Israel considers to be its enemies. It's secret, and what it does is highly classified. 
Yariv was a charming guy, very loyal. He had lots of friends. He was popular inside Mossad. He knew how to work a room. Mia was the opposite. He was an outsider at the agency, and it bothered him. When he opened the door, Yariv said something strange. From this moment onwards, your name is Anton Kunzla. You'd better start getting used to it. Mio didn't say anything. As I mentioned before, he was a quiet guy. He walked into the room and saw another agent, Michael, not his real name, sitting at a small table. He nodded to Michael, sat down, poured some coffee. Yariv followed. The three sipped the coffee before getting down to business. Yariv got it started. You must be wondering why I summoned you here, and in such a hurry. We have received final confirmation about a Nazi war criminal who lives in one of the South American countries. Israel had decided to hunt down one of the Holocaust's most savage killers. The target was Herbert Zuckers. He was a Latvian in the small country that sits between Russia and Germany. I'll tell you more about Zuckers in the next episode, but even though he became a war criminal, he'd led a fascinating life. Before World War II, he'd been a world-class aviator, the Latvian Lindbergh. He'd flown aircraft he'd built himself through sand and snowstorms all the way to the east coast of Africa, Japan, the Middle East. He was brave, adventurous. But that was before the war. When the Germans invaded, Zuckers had changed. According to Mossad, he'd become a beast, a mass murderer. He helped Hitler's forces kill 30,000 Jewish men, women, and children in actions that wiped out over 90% of Latvia's Jews. The survivors gave him a name after the war, the Butcher of Latvia. And Mossad had decided to hunt him down. It was another reason for the mission, which I'll get into a little later. It's something that I found almost unbelievable, a part of history that seems so bizarre to me that it couldn't have been real. But in 1964, the Israelis decided that Herbert Zuckers had to die. Yariv gave Mio a little background on the butcher. He'd fled to Brazil in 1946, after the war ended, with his wife and children and one unexpected guest I'll tell you about later. Yariv told the two agents that the butcher was living in a house in Sao Paulo. He owned a small boat rental business that catered to the locals and to tourists. Mio listened to Yariv talk. He looked calm. He always looked calm. But he wasn't calm. He was thinking about the past. I felt my heart race and my adrenaline level skyrocket suddenly. So many different thoughts ran through my mind. I released a deep breath. Having been born in Germany and having lost both parents in the Holocaust, I needed no lengthy, detailed explanations of that terrible time. My father, a well-known doctor in our hometown, served during the First World War as a medical officer in the Prussian army, and for his service in the cruel battles of Mar-le-Tour on the Western Front, he was awarded the Iron Cross. This fact did not stop the Nazis from sending him to his death in Dreisenstadt concentration camp. My mother was deported to Auschwitz, where she was murdered as part of what the Nazis and their abettors termed the final solution to the Jewish problem. For Mio, this would be a mission unlike any of the others he'd gone on. This was personal. He knew that Mossad didn't carry out many operations against escaped war criminals. Israel was only 16 years old at the time, and it had other things to worry about, mainly its own survival. The agency didn't have time to settle old scores. In fact, this would be the first time we know about that its spies were going to set out to kill a Nazi war criminal. Adolf Eichmann they'd kidnapped, but Zuckers they were determined to kill. Yariv added some more details. Zuckers was 64 years old, but he was still a powerful guy, built like a tank. Yariv described him to the two men. You will face a criminal who is, according to our reports, mistrustful, ruthless, and dangerous, and is always prepared for the worst. That was true, as Mio would later find out. Zuckers imagined Jewish agents around every corner. To carry out the mission, Mio had to get close to this guy, to form a real relationship, maybe even a friendship. 
This was deeply painful for him. The butcher was exactly the kind of man who'd forced his parents to the concentration camps. But why did Mossad want this man dead? There were thousands of ex-Nazis walking around Europe and South America. Why Zuckers? And why now? Yurif got to that. He wanted Mio and Michael to know the reason that the butcher had to die at that particular time. He started talking about an anniversary that was approaching in about eight months. On May 8, 1965, the world will mark the 20 years since the victory over Nazi Germany. And there are already voices, and not in Germany alone, which say that it is time to look forward, to draw a line under the events of the past, to forget the Nazis and to apply the statute of limitations to their crimes. That was the real reason for the mission. It turns out that in 1871, the German government had decided that all cases of murder would be given a 20-year statute of limitations. If you killed someone, the state would have 20 years to open a case against you. If they didn't, you were free, forever. You couldn't be indicted, you couldn't be prosecuted, and you couldn't go to jail. Of course, in 1871, the government had no idea that someone named Hitler would be born in Austria, and that the Holocaust would happen, and that six million Jews and millions of other victims would be murdered by their successors. They couldn't imagine something like the Third Reich was beyond them. The kinds of murders they imagined were the kind we know today. Crimes of passion, one person killing another person out of greed or momentary rage, or whatever. What you might call a garden variety murder, not Auschwitz. But by 1964, the Germans had grown tired of hearing about the war. There had been the Nuremberg trials in 1945, and there had been others since then. The guilty had been punished, in their view. People wanted to move on. Opinion polls showed that 57% of Germans were in favor of the statute of limitations. All it had to do was pass the German parliament, and it would become law. But Israel's leaders were determined that this would not happen. They protested to the German government, but that really went nowhere. Yarif told Mio that they believed the statute was going to pass. And that meant two things. Any escaped Nazi hiding in Europe or in South America, and some people believe there were thousands of them, would go free. They could never be brought to trial. This included the worst of the worst, the actual killers who'd shot Jews at the pits and put them into the gas chambers. I found this whole backstory to be a little surreal, honestly. I had no idea that Germany's leaders had ever thought about doing this. It seemed incredible to me that they seriously considered giving an amnesty to mass killers. But they did. And Mossad and many others suspected that if the statute passed, it would be a signal to start winding down the trials of the Nazi war criminals who had been indicted. It would be the end of the hunt for those responsible. Germany they just wanted to forget. They wanted the guilt and the stories of what happened at the camps to be over. So this is why Israel had come up with the mission. Yarif started talking about the statute, and he got a little emotional. It is absolutely inconceivable that tens of thousands of Nazi war criminals who never paid for their heinous crimes should now be able to crawl out of their hiding holes and spend the rest of their lives in peace and tranquility. It's been only 20 years since the release of the survivors of the death camps. And we owe it to them and to the six million who did not survive and are unable to avenge themselves. We must thwart this shameful process of the statute of limitations. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hi, this is Stephen Talty, host of Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher. The folks that helped me bring you this show, Diversion Podcasts, have just launched another podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Backstaged, The Devil in Metal, a deep dive into the history of metal music, filled with never-before-heard interviews and stories from some of the biggest names in music, including Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, Van Halen, and many others. It's outrageous, raw, and surprising at times. Backstage, The Devil in Metal is out now. Follow the show on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yuriv obviously felt the mission was justified, but he admitted it was something of a long shot. First, Mio had to get to Zuckers, this ex-soldier who went around armed and on the lookout for exactly what Mio was, a Mossad agent, to trust him. Second, get him out of Brazil. Third, he had to get him to Chile or Uruguay on some pretext and lead him into a trap where the kill team was waiting. Finally, the entire team had to get out of the country without getting caught. After Zuckers was dead, Mossad would announce it to the world, reminding everyone, particularly people in Germany, that these kinds of Nazi monsters were still out there. The agency had to do this before the statute of limitations came up for debate in the German parliament the following March. That gave them about six months. And then they had to hope that the publicity and the shocking crimes that the butcher had committed would convince enough German legislators that the amnesty could not happen. The statute of limitations would be voted down. That was the end game. It was a pretty long string of things to happen in a row. If the chain was broken at any point, the operation would fail. But it was the best idea that Mossad had. If we succeed in the operation we are now preparing, we'll once again put the fear of death into the hearts of tens of thousands of Nazi war criminals. We'll do everything in our power to make the rest of their lives miserable. They will fear their own shadow. They will not dare to leave their homes, and they will have continuous nightmares of anonymous assassins, the offspring of their innocent victims, seeking their revenge. This was interesting to me. Yariv was saying that even if Mossad carried out the mission and the Germans still went ahead with the statute, the death of Herbert Zuckers would have meaning because it would serve as a warning. Any Nazi killers could never be sure they would be safe again. So it would be a kind of life sentence, a fear of waiting for the knock on the door. But that was a pale imitation of what the survivors and millions of other people around the world really wanted. True justice. The men went over some other details. Yariv talked about Zucker's crimes, 
I'll get to those things in episode two, because we actually have the testimonies of survivors describing what they saw, and I'd like you to hear them. Yariv did mention one more thing. He pointed out that there was a difference between other Nazi fugitives like Adolf Eichmann and people like Herbert Zuckers. Eichmann was one of the masterminds of the Holocaust, but he'd never shot anyone. He'd gone to visit concentration camps, but he kept his distance from the victims. He didn't have actual blood on his hands. But Zuckers was at the opposite end of that spectrum. According to Yariv, he'd shot women and children, among other things. We are dealing here with a despicable sadist who actually enjoyed torturing his victims and murdering innocent people. And this Tsukos has the chutzpah to give interviews to Brazilian magazines and claim that he is innocent, that he has no idea what anyone would want with him. And after telling everyone about his innocence, he parades his SS uniform with great pride before the cameras. This is true, and it's one of the crazy details that drew me to this story. Most escaped war criminals changed their names when they fled to South America or other countries. Herbert Zuckers didn't. He not only arrived in Brazil under his own name, he actually sought out Jewish leaders in Rio, told them how he'd saved some of their people during the war. We'll get to that part, but I couldn't believe it when I first heard it. Every other Nazi on the run I've ever heard about had assumed a false identity. Joseph Mengele went by the name Wolfgang Gerhardt. Eichmann had called himself Ricardo Clement when he was living in Argentina. It was common sense. If you were one of the most wanted men in the world, the first thing you did was find a new identity. But the butcher apparently didn't do that. Could he have been so delusional or so self-confident that he hadn't even bothered to get a fake passport? It seemed incredible to me. So the butcher wasn't only guilty in the eyes of Israel's leaders, he was laughing at them, taunting the survivors. Why would Zuckers do that? Some of his supporters actually pointed to this fact to prove his innocence. Why would a guilty man keep his own name if he'd done such terrible things? At this point, it seemed to me that Zuckers was either innocent or mentally unstable in some way. Maybe the risk-taking that had made him into the Latvian Lindbergh had also made him reckless later in life. I just didn't know. It was one other reason I found later on that Zuckers had been chosen as the Mossad's target. Months before Mio went to that Paris apartment, a meeting had been held in Israel with the leaders of the various intelligence agencies. The subject was Nazi officers who still remained at large. During the meeting, someone read out the list of escaped criminals. When he got to Herbert Zuckers, the head of the country's military intelligence directorate collapsed. His name was Aharon Yariv. He wasn't any relation to Yosef Yariv, Mio's boss. It turned out that this man's family had lived in Latvia when the war came, and the butcher had helped murder them. This personal reaction helped move Zucker's name to the top of the list. He was a mass killer. He apparently had no remorse. His whereabouts were publicly known, and he had killed the loved ones of someone high up in the Israeli government. He was perfect in a way. Zuckers would be the representative of all the Holocaust killers. The meeting in Paris was coming to an end. But before the three men went their separate ways, there was one last question they had to decide. Would Mio go on the mission alone? Or would Mossad send a small stalking and protection unit with him? Mio spoke up immediately. I prefer to work alone. I'd rather work without tails or protection. My gut feeling tells me that such an operation can be carried out only alone. Me against the target. Mio would later say a big team could have endangered the mission. Zuckers was paranoid. Why give him a reason to believe he was being followed by a bunch of dark-haired men who just might turn out to be Israelis? There was probably another reason, as I later found out. But I'll save that for another episode when Mio's actually in South America. The last thing Yariv did was show Mio the files on Zuckers. It was, I wrote in my book, a thin stack of pages. Thin due to the fact that so few Jews had been left alive to speak about Herbert Zuckers. These pages represented about half a dozen testimonies. The exact number isn't known. 
that trace Sucre's crimes during the war, collected from eyewitnesses during the late 1940s and early 50s. Some of these accounts were barbaric, others oddly moving. In one story, Zucker speaks to a young girl in Yiddish. They have a short, pleasant conversation before Zucker's, for no apparent reason, pulls out his handgun and executes her in cold blood. In another account, Zucker saves a woman that he knew to be Jewish, risking his own life to do so. This collection of testimonies added up to a curiously fractured, incomplete portrait of Herbert Zucker's, whose life had been larger and stranger than Mio could have ever imagined at that first meeting. It would take many years and the survival of one obsessed Jewish woman to tell it in full. One survivor later wrote, Zucker's is a fascinating historical figure, full of tremendous contradictions. Before they left, the three Mossad agents agreed on a code name for Zucker's. They would be sending telegrams and letters with invisible ink, and Yariv ordered that the butcher's real name not be used in any of them. If some of their correspondence was discovered, he could be tipped off, and the mission would be over. So they chose a substitute. They would refer to him as the late one, as in the deceased. It was their little joke. After that, the meeting broke up. Mio strolled back to his apartment in Paris, where his family was living at the time. He had to tell his wife they'd be moving again. In case Mio was caught in Brazil and exposed as a spy, Mossad wanted his family to change apartments. It was for their own safety. His wife had been through this before. Being in Mossad meant that he'd often be gone for months at a time. He missed birthdays, anniversaries. It was part of the job. So that was the mission. Mio was to travel to Brazil impersonating an Austrian businessman named Anton Kunzla. There he would get to know Herbert Zuckers. How, Yariv didn't say. That would be up to Mio. He then had to get the butcher to leave the country and travel to another part of South America, where the other team members would be waiting. The reason it had to be another country was blowback. If Israel assassinated the butcher in Brazil, there were thousands of Jews living there who might suffer the consequences. Threats, bombings, whatever. And if the Brazilian police caught Mio or one of the other agents, that would be a disaster too. It was a right-wing military government. Who knew what they might do? They might hang Mio or put him in jail for decades. Either of those would be an embarrassment for Israel. They didn't want that to happen. Meanwhile, 6,000 miles away, Herbert Zuckers was tending to his boats in a small marina on a man-made lake in Sao Paulo. Winter in the Southern Hemisphere was almost over. He was hoping the summer would make him some money. He had no idea who Mio was or that the Mossad was after him. But the butcher did know one thing, or he believed it. He believed that his victims had not forgotten him. Four years before, Mossad had kidnapped Adolf Eichmann in Argentina and put him on trial. The man who escaped the Nuremberg war trials by fleeing to South America receives justice at the hands of the people whom he had aimed to wipe out. The kidnapping had scared Zuckers. He put a barbed wire around his house, bought a German shepherd to patrol it. He assembled a collection of guns to protect himself. He was basically living inside a fortress. But Zuckers went further. He went to the Brazilian intelligence agency to appeal for protection. They were called DOPS, and they had a bad reputation for kidnapping and killing anyone who opposed the military regime. After his visit, Brazil issued a warning to anyone that might think of kidnapping Zuckers. This would not be tolerated. They were talking to Israel. Yariv had warned Mio that his target was on guard. In fact, it went way beyond that. At one point before the operation began, Zuckers had promised his family that he was ready. If the Mossad comes after me, he told them, I will die before I let them win. Mio had been warned, but he really had no idea of who he was actually going up against. Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. 
This season is written and hosted by Stephen Tolte. Produced and directed by Scott Waxman and Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Story editing by Jacob Bronstein, with editorial direction from Scott Waxman and Mangesh Hatikadur. Editing, mixing, and sound design by Mark Francis. With the voices of Omri Engel, Andrew Polk, Steve Routman, and Stefan Rudnitsky. Theme music by Tyler Cash. Archival research by Adam Shapiro. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.